0: Good morning. morning. Spend a moment in prayer, please. Gracious Father, thank you that you have united us to your beloved Son, Jesus, through the work of your Spirit. And this is the song and the wonder of the saints through the ages, that we who were dead in our trespasses and sins have been made alive together in Christ. We ask this morning by your spirit that you would open our hearts to receive the word as we should, that you would reorient our affections, that you would transform us more into the image of your son, that we would see the beauty of the gospel and understand deeper the teachings of Jesus in our daily life. And we need you for all of these, God of grace and God of glory. We ask for the many churches here in this county, around the world, that are proclaiming your Lordship, Christ, that you are pleased with the fruit of our lips, and that your word transforms the church universal that we go out and proclaim your supremacy, your beauty, your glory to the nations, that they too can enter into great joy with us. We thank you, Father, for hearing us and for the work your Spirit will do today through your word as you always do. All of this in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. Amen. <clears throat> this is the first Sunday of New Year. Uh, you can see the sermon title, New Beginnings, How the Gospel Transforms. And uh, Philemon is a remarkable letter, to say the least. Um, me and Karen were talking before the service. There are so many contours uh, in this letter, and I do not... Um, stand before you as one who's going to be able to deliver this to you in all of its beauty and its depth. So this is simply a survey but to allow us to recognize how the gospel does indeed transform us and how Paul the Apostle expects the gospel to transform us on a daily basis in our society. And this is a tough letter. Tough letter. Since the 1930s, scholars have been wrestling through Philemon The intricacies of debate related to Philemon, as you'll see shortly, are many. And I'm going to avoid some of those complexities. If you want to ask me after church about some of those, feel free. But we're going to get some of the major contours to help us consider how the gospel is indeed revolutionary in our own life as well, as it was in the first century for Philemon, Onesimus and for Paul. So I'd like you to open up, if you don't have your Bible in front of you, and your pew Bible It's page 845. I need you to have the Bible in front of you because we're going to be doing a walkthrough of this text, and I also need you to have some flexible fingers because I'm going to have you in some other passages as well. So let's begin with Philemon, page 845 in your pew Bible. By way of background, we like to begin there to hear the word of God as it was delivered to the original audience as best as we can by God's grace. So, Philemon, uh, from this letter, we recognize that he was a slave owner. Interesting, complex issue. Paul was writing to him, uh, who lived in the town of Colossae, approximately 60 to 62 AD, hundreds of miles from Palestine most likely to a Gentile, or Roman citizen named Philemon. Philemon had a slave whose name was Onesimus. And this letter revolves around that very delicate relationship. And what I'd like to present to you today is if the gospel can transform a very delicate situation such as this from the greater to the lesser, it can certainly transform us on a daily basis as well but this takes a little bit of consideration of the historical background related to slavery. So I want to talk about slavery for a few minutes before we actually jump into the text so you can see just precisely how delicate the situation was for Paul. So let's begin first of all with a fellow by the name of Aristotle. You might have heard of Aristotle before. He was a very famous Greek philosopher. uh, Many, many years before the Romans had assumed world domination and world power, but he is very influential for the Romans. Now, for Aristotle, slavery was a concept that he said was fitting according to nature. He believed that for Aristotle, there were certain peoples who were born of a lesser status or rank, so they therefore should be slaves. That was Aristotle. But the Romans, interestingly, disagreed with Aristotle. They thought that slavery was against the law of nature. Aha, but the Romans... (laughs) have slavery. That is one of their laws, the law of slavery. So how would they resolve this apparent discrepancy with the only case in extant Roman law where you have a law of nature and Roman law contradicting one another? How does that operate? Well, for the Romans, it operates in a certain way, and it is the word power. Power. The desire to dominate, the will to power, to coerce into effect, to manipulate, and to triumph over your enemies. If you're familiar with Roman history, you know this is what the Romans do. They were fierce conquerors. So, under their great ideology of power and domination, in warfare they would capture people and they would sell them into slavery. It was a visible demonstration of the superior might and triumph of Rome. And a large population of the slaves in the Mediterranean world in this context would have been taken from warfare a demonstration of Roman ideology of power, of triumph. So, when you saw a slave, visible demonstration of this ideology. However, it also reached the lower level, the social level, of the family. The Romans had a concept known as pater familias. In Latin, it means the father or the head of the household. He was the patria potesta, and he was a visible demonstration of Rome itself, In Rome, in law, they allowed the father of the household to have and wield absolute exercise of power over his family. Even the power of life and death. Early on in the 12 tablets, Rome's famous laws, he was granted this power. Without anybody interfering in his understanding of discipline and justice, he would ensure that Roman values were reflected well in the way he coerced his family through his own power. Now, this was felt on various levels in the family, for the wife, for the children, but it was realized in its most absolute form in slavery. So, Philemon had slaves. Naturally, the presupposition is, you wield absolute control over your slave. He has no body that is his own. He has no mind that is his own. Seneca in the first century assumes that if your slave wrongs you, Floggings were to be expected, breaking his legs, or imprisonment, or death. So this is the world in which they operated. Philemon, as the head of the household, the pater familias, wielded absolute control over his family, most idealized in the Roman value of power over this slave, Onesimus. That's the historical background. So what is most remarkable about this is Paul, who was well-versed in Roman law. Writing to Philemon for an issue for which Philemon has absolute control. This is not Paul's jurisdiction. This is entirely outside of Paul's jurisdiction. Now you can see why this would be a very delicate issue in the first century. Who does Paul suppose himself to be? Moreover, who does he assume? How does he assume the gospel actually can transform this relationship? You have Roman universal law of power. Pater the gospel. And Paul is not going to refuse the gospel to implement, to integrate, to transform the society of his day. And this is where this letter becomes absolutely fascinating for us. Very delicate, difficult situation. I would never have wanted to be involved in this situation. Hands off, <laughs> do as you Please. And Paul doesn't see it that way. He doesn't see the gospel as operating that way in society. Paul operates with the nexus, the orbit of the gospel of God. That's transformed Paul, and then he calls Philemon to assimilate that transformation into his own life as well. Scholars have long wrestled through Paul's boldness. He says, in Christ I beseech you, because he knows the way the kingdom of God operates and expects Philemon to walk in accordance with the law of Christ, not the law of Caesar. So this is where this becomes absolutely fascinating. However, before we jump in and get a catch of some of the contours of how Paul actually does this, proposes to create a transformation for Philemon to receive Onesimus back in deep and radical forgiveness, I want to look at the Gospels themselves. Have you ever had this situation where you read the gospel and you say, beautiful teaching or saying of Jesus. Scholars call it creeds or they call it maxims. It's a saying of Jesus. Some people put them up on the wall in their house. And you read it and you say, simply amazing. But I have no idea how to do that. It's nice on the wall, but I don't know how to implement that into my own life. Have you ever had that experience? I know I have had on numerous occasions. So you think about many of the teachings of Jesus... As golden as they are, they are sometimes rather difficult to identify how do I apply this into my daily life. What's so fascinating about Philemon is that this is basically a case study, an application of Jesus' teachings in the gospel. So I want to look at a few of these. So with one of your fingers in Philemon, please turn with me to Mark chapter 3. And I'm going to invite you this morning to think deeply with me as to how Paul's letter to Philemon actually is applying the teachings of Jesus at key places along the way. So in Mark chapter 3, here is one of those teachings of Jesus that hits us right between the eyes and we say, wonderful teaching, I do not know how to put this into practice. And I want to encourage you through the sermon is to say, this is exactly how Paul is applying this teaching of Jesus. So in Mark chapter 3, verse 31. This is what scholars would say. It's a korea. So Jesus has a final pronouncement at the very end. It comes in verse 34. But look at the setting here in verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. 33. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, his disciples, And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. In the first century, uh, that is a no-no. Countercultural, you are who you belong to. Jesus is breaking the nexus of his immediate physical family and reestablishing a social value of a larger family unit that is more fundamental in society. And it is the family that belongs to the kingdom of God. I want you to consider how, Phile- how Philemon is hearing this teaching of Jesus applied in his own life. Now also, go with me to Matthew chapter 18. In your pew Bible, it's page 695. 695. Matthew chapter 18, if you're familiar with that, Matthew chapter 18 is the teachings on the way the church operates. It's a nice section of Matthew's gospel where Jesus does not talk to outsiders— the crowds. He's actually talking to those that we would consider the church. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 18, it's the only time you have the word church that actually appears in the Gospels. So Jesus is talking to inner faith relationship, those who are united to Christ. And actually, I should say at this point, this sermon is really only devoted to those who are saints in Christ. So we're not talking about people outside of Christ. This is simply for those who are saints. Matthew 18 assures us of this. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 18, there's a few things that are occurring in these teachings of Jesus. One of the first, and you have this early on in Matthew 18, 1 through 4. The question is in verse 1, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? And you see them reflecting this Roman value system of power and greatness and that ideology. And what does Jesus say in verse 4? Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of God. In other words, you're going to relinquish your power, your entitlement, your belief that you get in by your own merit and worth, and as a child, you come in as empty-handed and in great need. Radical. I want you to consider how Paul is operating with this teaching of Jesus when he approaches Philemon. Next, in verse 5, all the way through Verse 9, Jesus talks about these little children, the little ones, those who are despised in the covenant community of faith, those that we see as useless, who have very few gifts that they can contribute, or so we suppose. And what does Jesus say about those little ones in the covenant community of faith? He says, whatever you do, make sure you do not despise or offend, scandalize one of these little ones, because great judgment rests on you. Moreover, in the parable of the lost sheep, he makes sure we realize the supreme worth of value of the precious little ones. That the angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Moreover, in verse 15, another concept of Jesus is the concept of radical forgiveness. And you see Peter who comes in verse 21 How many times shall I forgive my brother? When he sins against me up to seven times, and Peter thought that was fairly radical for his day, that type of forgiveness wasn't needed to be extended that many times, and Jesus, of course, says to him, no, not seven times, but 77, and then gives him a parable of the radical nature of forgiveness, that forgiveness is simply an imitation of what God has given to us. God has forgiven us a greater debt, so then who are we to withhold forgiveness to another? And to withhold forgiveness to another is to, is to incur considerable damage in our own relationship with God. So we have these three concepts in Matthew chapter 18. The greatest is the least, to relinquish power, in verse 1 through 4. The next concept of cherishing and seeing as precious and valuable the little ones. In verse 5 through 14. And last, in verse 15, throughout the end of Matthew chapter 18, the concept of radical forgiveness. And sometimes these just sit on our wall as nice sayings of Jesus. This is where Philemon comes in. Because now Paul apparently has been reflecting on these gospel teachings because he actually believes that the gospel has transformed him is going to transform and continue to transform Philemon in a very delicate and difficult situation. So let's turn back to Philemon and see how Paul actually accomplishes this. I want to begin quickly um, <clears throat> with a comment, with a quote, that really sets the foundation for this. This is a quote, uh, and I went through... 50 articles on Philemon to read what people were saying about Philemon. And I went through all of them and I said, you know, the best quote comes from Martin Luther. (laughs) So I want to read to you what Martin Luther says about Philemon. This sets the stage for us with understanding that whatever Paul is appealing to Philemon to do, it's grounded on the previous work of God in Christ that Paul himself has experienced. This is what Martin Luther says. What Christ has done for us with God the Father... That St. Paul does also for Onesimus with Philemon. For Christ emptied himself of his rights and overcame the Father with love and humility, so that the Father had to put away his wrath and rights and receive us into favor for the sake of Christ, who so earnestly advocates our cause and so heartily takes our part. For we are all his Onesimuses if we believe. Fascinating. The gospel is the true unleashing power of God that transforms relationships. If we identify what God has done for us in Christ, the miracle of this letter to Philemon begins to make more sense. Let's take a quick walk through Philemon to get a catch for the contours of Paul's letter. Now, some scholars say this is rather manipulative of Paul, but I want you to consider this might not be manipulative. This is a master rhetorician, a master persuader, someone who's transformed by the gospel and uh, expects Philemon to respond in kind. So in verse 1 through 3, as you're looking there in Philemon, just so we can identify the units of how the letter progresses, this is a standard, typical Pauline letter. Doug Hall was doing a Sunday school class today on John, First John's letter, and that is not a standard Pauline letter. Uh, this is standard Paul. He begins with a greeting. And so in verse 1 through 3, he has a number of greetings. We're going to come back and revisit this because his greeting is very interesting as to how he greets these individuals. And then he has the grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In a nutshell, Paul is greeting the saints. Verse 1 through 3. Verse 4 through 7. He begins with, I thank my God. That's the main verb of this section. And then the rest of this paragraph develops why Paul thanks God. The primary reason is because, as you're looking there in the text, in verse 5, Paul has heard about the faith in the Lord Jesus and the love that Philemon has for all the saints. Now catch what Paul is doing. He is greeting the saints. Then he thanks God for the way God has energized Philemon to always love the saints. Then in verse 8 through verse 16, he has an announcement. Someone has just become a saint. Now did you catch the logic previous? Paul greets the saints, thanks Philemon for his love he praises God for the love that Philemon has for all of the saints, and then he just notifies him that Onesimus has just now become a saint. Now, in light of Philemon's past behavior in response to the saints, what do you think Paul is going to presuppose is going to occur next? Well, it's what happens in verse 17 through 22. If you consider me a partner, receive him as you would receive me and as you received the rest of the saints. And with this, he closes with a final greeting and a note of grace. So catch this, greets the saints, thanks God for the way Philemon has treated the saints, love for all of them. By the way, Onesimus is now a saint. (laughs) Guess what you're going to do? Um, this is the logic of Paul and is very consistent with the gospel. Now, Aristotle, we mentioned him earlier with slavery. Let's back off of his view of slavery for a minute. And he would categorize Paul's argument as a categorical syllogism, a technical name for how components of life relate to one another. It's called a categorical syllogism. I'll read to you how this works. It goes like this. All A, all of entity A, whatever that entity might be A, you could put anything in there, all A you presuppose is all of A is B. So whatever's in category A belongs in category B. Then you enter into a new entity called C. And if you presuppose that C belongs to A, then you have to acknowledge that then C belongs to B. Everybody with me? So let me read you a couple so you can see how Paul's logic works. Oh, and I was hesitant to do this today because I know this is a tender subject for sports fans. So I decided to avoid our geography I'm not going to talk about uh, Baltimore or Pittsburgh or Philadelphia. uh, But here's the categorical syllogism so you can see Paul's logic here because it's beautifully expressed in the gospel. Here it is, all A, all cowboy fans, right? That's neutral, hopefully, for most of you. (laughs) Hopefully. I'll hear about this at the end of the sermon, I'm sure. Uh, All cowboy fans is our A. Everybody got that? All cowboy fans, A are real sports fans. Okay, just for the sake of argument, let's, let's assume that. All cowboy fans A are real sports fans, which is when B. Everybody with me, right? Okay, so Henry, the new entity I haven't introduced yet, let's use the word Henry. Henry is now C. Henry is a Cowboys fan. Therefore, what? You guys are good. This is early, too, and it's hard to do this with the weather, but you're catching me. Therefore, Henry is a real sports fan. Now, this is what Paul is doing in this categorical syllogism. All saints, A. All saints, A, will be shown love by Philemon, B. Right? Onesimus, C, is now a saint. (laughs) Therefore, what is Philemon going to do? Show love. So this is Paul's logic of the gospel, for Philemon to act in a manner consistent with his character and what God has done in his life. So that's the rhetoric of how he works through the letter, but I'm missing a lot of key points. And so I want to stop here and just for a few moments bring out some of the nuggets of Paul's teaching. Okay, let's revisit then now verse 1 through 3. And I want to take a special note of a few things that Paul is doing here in this letter. Um, if, you, if you remember your, uh, in your classes in high school or middle school, they had a, a class, sometimes maybe they called it grammar, or they called it English, or they called it literature, and you did those grammatical analysis. Do you remember these in class where you did the pronouns? And Doug was doing something like this this morning very helpfully. Well, Greek grammarians, those who study Greek, have this term, and you don't have to use this, but they call it an appositional phrase or an appositional title. And basically what that means is when you are activating or presenting a character in a speech, an individual, you will usually call them by name so people can identify this is the person you're referring to. And we all do this. So if I'm going to talk to Trish about someone, let's say we'll use Henry throughout the sermon, I will, talk, I will use the word Henry. However, I can give a description of Henry after I use the word Henry. Now that, in Trish's mind as the listener, helps her form where my discourse is going. So I could simply say, Henry... The forgetful one, that's my opposition, that's my title that I attach to Henry, forgot his library book and now lost it and has to pay for a new one. Now you see by labeling him as the forgetful one, that's the opposition, you know where my discourse is going. I've restructured Trish as the listener to carefully identify Henry as a certain type of individual. I, or I could do it in every way. You have lots of options as you're, as you're activating participants. Henry, the brave that's the opposition a way to describe henry ventured into the mall on christmas eve so by calling him brave you know in my discourse my speech to you that okay henry is someone of course of some merit or worth or value that he's going to overcome the odds or the difficulty that he is going to experience in the mall or you could do this if henry is a slave you could simply say henry the reclusive slave. And with that adjective, you now know what I'm going to say next about this reclusive slave, Henry. So, everybody's seen, and what, what occurs in Paul's letter is he doesn't just name individuals, he actually attaches titles to them. And by attaching titles to them, what I want you to carefully listen to is the fact that he is reshaping Roman value systems and attaching people names and titles that belong to the kingdom of God that do not belong to Roman's value system. He's subverting the Roman ideology of power and domination and manipulation and attaching new titles to individuals to level the playing field and bring all people in now united in the body of Christ. And it is fascinating how he does this. Now, he could do this in two ways, because this is Paul. The logic that he operates with is he's going to use intimate familial family terminology or titles for many individuals in this letter. Time after time, when he notes a character, he's going to give them a family word, like brother, sister, heart, child. You're getting the sense that whatever Rome operates with, with their value of their family system, is not going to be the kingdom of God operates with its own family system orientations. And it is rather interesting. Now, Paul could have developed, and he does this for Galatians and Ephesians, he could have developed a long string of logical arguments to show that we are now all one in Christ. And he actually does this in Galatians chapter 3. He spends an entire chapter showing how that all of us, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, we're all now one in Christ. But it takes him 26 verses to get to the punchline. Now, here he's not leading you through the logical string of arguments. He's simply attaching titles to people and restructuring the value system against Rome now into the lordship of Jesus Christ. I just want you to note how he does this. So look with me very quickly through his appositions. Paul, and this is radical, what does he call himself? He calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, scholars were going to say there's a couple interesting things about that. Why would he call himself that? And by the way, if you look at Paul's greetings, he calls himself many different things in his introductions. He's calling himself a prisoner. Well, commentators say, well, one of the reasons is because he wants Philemon to know that Paul's commitment to the gospel has cost him something. (laughs) Imprisonment. What is Paul suggesting in Philemon's life? If my commitment to the gospel has cost me something... Philemon, it's going to cost you something as well. But he is actually in 60 to 62 for two years, according to Acts, the book of Acts, its chronology. He's actually in prison in Rome under house arrest. So he's actually technically a prisoner of Rome. <laughs> right? He's seen as a social deviant. Two years drawing out his case. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say he's a prisoner of Rome. He says he's a prisoner of... Do you see how he is subverting the value system of Rome itself? His allegiance, the domination, doesn't belong to Rome. It belongs to Christ. And he starts, starts the letter there. Look at then how he notes Jesus. Jesus is the anointed one. That's his apposition. Timothy, how does he label Timothy? Our brother. He could have just said Timothy. Philemon, dear friend... Fellow worker. You have this kinship, this familial, intimate language. Aphia, sister. Archippus, fellow soldier. Look at how he then notes God in verse 3. God, our father. I've already talked to you about the pater familias. The father is the head of the household who wields absolute control and exercises dominion over his family, particularly slaves. Philemon isn't that... Right? He, there's another father, and it's God. Then he talks about not Jesus and not just Jesus Christ, but now he adds the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an issue of the Lordship of Christ. He goes on in verse seven, very quickly. we'll look at a few more of these, to note Philemon, and in there he calls Philemon a brother. Verse nine, Paul's an old man, and again, he's going to reference the fact that he's a prisoner of Christ. It seems he's getting into the very heart of his letter by bringing out that again. Then he calls Onesimus, this slave who has wronged his master in some way. We do not know the extent of the wrong, but we know he's wronged his master. He has now become a believer in Christ, in prison. And so Paul calls him a son. And in verse 11, he calls him useful. And in verse 12, he says he's his very heart. Verse 16, then he calls Onesimus, a dear brother, 17, partner. What is Paul doing by restructuring the titles of this letter, showing that there is a new value system? It is no longer Romans' value system. And what does that say to Philemon? The pater familias who wields absolute control. It doesn't operate this way in the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is brothers and sisters united in Christ under his headship and God's Father. God is Father. Uh, very radical. Very, very subversive. Another thing I'd like you to note in verse 3. <clears throat> when people read the letter to Philemon, we often presuppose this letter is simply about Paul the apostle, Onesimus, a slave who's wronged his master, and Philemon, the slave owner. But there's a key character who's missing. (laughs) Key character. And this allows Paul to reshape Philemon's theological foundation. The key player, I would suggest, is not Paul, it's not Philemon, it's not Onesimus. It is the person in verse 3. It is God. Why do I say that? Because Paul believes the only way Philemon is going to be able to receive a useless, now useful slave back is because the grace of God is going to have to be operative in his life. No presence of God, no grace of God, this is not going to occur. So Paul's universe, his storied universe of how God is operative is God is intimately involved, dispensing of grace. And not only does he do that at the beginning of the letter, he's also going to do it at the end. That tells us that this sermon, as I'm preaching to you, better not be just an ethical pull-yourselves-up-by-your-bootstraps. Unless we're related to the gospel and imitating the work of Christ and acknowledging his grace in our life, none of this will occur. We can't extend radical forgiveness to others. We can't see them as equal, brothers and sisters in Christ, unless the grace of God is operative. And Paul really believes that in verse 4 because he says, I thank my God. Then he goes on to talk about how Philemon has shown love for the saints. But the question is, why would he thank God for that? (laughs) Because why? God is the one who what? Energizes, transforms, and continues to transform Philemon so that he can show love to the saints. This is why he's praising God. He's thanking God. He's not thanking Philemon. Because the one responsible for Philemon's transformation is God himself. God is the main character in the story. Then, as we get down to verse 8, Paul has this radical catch. He says, in Christ, and Paul loves to use the terminology in Christ. Paul believes, as a prisoner of Christ, that he is an ambassador for Christ. So the message that he's delivering to Philemon is actually the message of Christ himself. Christ is intimately, actively involved in this letter from start to finish, and expects Philemon to respond appropriately. Something else I'd like you to note in verse 8 and 9. Paul says, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold in order to you to do what you ought to do. Paul is the apostle, could push his shoulders around, could reflect Roman ideologies of power. But instead he says, I'm going to do something else where true transformation lies, within by the Spirit of God energizing the individual, it's on the basis of love. And as a matter of fact, in the Greek, you can change the Greek word order as you please in Greek, but when you front something before the verb, it tells you that there's something significant. And here in this verse, Paul actually, in verse 9, puts love first. That means whatever he's going to be operating in and enjoining Philemon to do, it's going to be through the basis of love not Roman ideologies of power or manipulation. And he believes and confidently expects that Philemon is going to respond appropriately. Love is the appeal. Moreover, in verse 8 through 16, Onesimus, who was formerly useless, there's a play on words, has just become a believer or a saint in Christ. And therefore, Paul sees him as useful. Verse 11. What does that tell us about Paul's ideology, Paul's value system, Paul's understanding of the gospel? If you are in Christ, you are valuable. Beneficial, you are, you are useful. Now, moreover, in verse 17 through 22, look at what Paul says. Consider him a partner. Welcome him as you would welcome me. And this is where Paul reflects Jesus himself. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, I'll take care of it. That is a saint entering into the need of another saint and reflecting the self-sacrificial giving example of Jesus Christ. And Paul is very confident in his obedience as he tells us in verse 21. And with this, he closes his letter. We begin with a slave who has wronged his master who under Roman jurisdiction can expect swift, complete punishment. And Paul steps in with the message of the gospel and radically alters the stage for Philemon. Church tradition later on actually believes that Philemon submitted to the request And of course, that's not in Scripture itself, but even later in the 4th century, uh, there's a list of people who became bishops in the church, and guess who became a bishop in the church? Well, yes, it was Philemon, but guess who else? Onesimus. So, Paul's expectation in church history, they seem to believe this letter received and had full effect in Philemon's life. A fascinating, fascinating letter. Now I'd like you to go back with me to Matthew one more time. So I asked you to have your finger there in that place and I want to revisit the teachings of Jesus and show how Paul is implementing this in Philemon's life. Okay, Matthew chapter 18, 695 in your pew Bible. Matthew 18, one through four. The question is, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Well, in Roman society and Roman values, the father of the household (laughs) is the greatest. And what is Paul doing by leveling the playing field and giving names of titles like brothers and sisters and child? He's leveling that under the lordship of Jesus Christ to show that each person comes to the Lord needy, without resume and without credentials, and that's the beauty of the gospel, that we are now in a new relationship because we are in Christ as brothers and as sisters. Do we believe that? Oh, this is the application part. Do we believe that Jesus is serious about the fact that now in him, the new humanity is formed under Christ, that we are now truly brothers and sisters? Who would dream of taking the wrong and paying for the debt of someone else whom we are not intimately involved with physically? Would we do that for someone in our church? Would we help financially? Would we help socially? Do we just call people brothers and sisters while actually implementing the gospel power into their life and believing that? Do we? Moreover, we've all been given a gift by the Spirit of God. Paul is asking Philemon to relinquish his claims to power and manipulation and instead live radical forgiveness and service. As we're serving here at Jerusalem Church and abroad, using our gifts, the question is, do we ever use our service to Christ in a manipulative way for power, to coerce others, to shunt others, to silence others, to show them that we are greater in the kingdom of God? Um I often get asked the question of when I am going to graduate from my Ph.D., which is 2017, Lord willing, Will I be, do I want to be called a doctor? And so they ask, when do we have to start calling you a doctor? <laughs> well, all of you need to know, you never need to call me a doctor. I would just prefer, uh, on Paul's model here, just simply be called a fellow brother with you. And if I manipulate the gifts the Spirit of God has given to me to serve you, um, please make me aware of that. I want to show Christ as supreme and glorious and beautiful, as we all need to do selfless giving and charity. That is the first application here. Matthew chapter 18, Paul is taking into effect in Philemon's life. Moreover, in Matthew chapter 18, don't despise the little ones. Uh, This is more of a note for those of you who see yourself as Onesimus through the eyes of Philemon. Useless. Um, Paul, in his other letters, states that the Spirit of God has sovereignly given gifts to the body as he pleases, according to his dispensing, according to his infinite wisdom. What that means for the body of Christ is just as Onesimus is now useful because he's in Christ, each person here Is intimately useful in the kingdom of God. It isn't just Philemon. It isn't just Archippus. Do we see that? Do you know the gifts or gift the Spirit of God has given to you? And do you enter into that joyfully for the service of Christ and for other people? Everyone here is useful if you are in Christ. Do we encourage others in their gifts? Do we cherish them? Do we thank them for exercising their gifts? So that's the application number two that Philemon is going to hear deeply from Paul. This Onesimus who is useless is now useful and church tradition is later going to say useful to the extent of being becoming a bishop. The last point in Matthew chapter 1: extending radical forgiveness... Um, As I made you aware at the very beginning, there is no way a Roman master would ever forgive a slave who is his commodity, who is a living tool or an asset for him. If discipline is necessary, discipline will be taken. He'll break his legs or flog him or imprison him or do whatever he sees is fitting and No one will stand in his way. And Paul enters into this letter and says, modeling after Christ, radical forgiveness. And that's a master to a slave, And people wonder why this letter is included in the New Testament. And I said earlier, it's the message from the greater to the lesser. If Paul can enjoin Philemon in a master-slave relationship to Onesimus to forgive him, in Roman jurisdiction, two brothers in Christ, it is sometimes a bit easier (laughs) to forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ. This radical situation illustrates The nature of radical forgiveness. Peter heard it from Jesus 70 times seven and Paul then tells Philemon, and this is the nature of radical forgiveness. As you've been forgiven, so you forgive. And Philemon, we trust, and the church in his home have all been transformed through the gospel accordingly. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this remarkable letter, Paul to Philemon. Thank you, Father, that you have placed us in Christ, that we are all brothers and sisters, those who claim Jesus is Lord. Thank you that you've gifted us with gifts according to your wisdom. Forgive us for not encouraging others to use their gifts and forgive us for manipulating others with the way we use our own gifts. Thank you, Christ, for your work of forgiveness in our life and we ask for the grace to extend forgiveness to those in Jerusalem who might have wronged us. So we ask by the power of your Spirit that this word would... Remain embedded deep in our soul and the gospel that has transformed our lives would continue to transform our lives through your son that he is seen as supremely glorious and beautiful and through the power of your spirit. Thank you, Father. Amen.